We read scripture from Romans chapter 9. We begin a treatment of Lord's Day 21, and it's my intention to preach four sermons on this Lord's Day, a Lord's Day that's filled with significance, and to use also the book of Romans as the scripture passages with regard to each one of those sermons. So as we begin, we're going to look at the election of the church, we'll look at the gathering of the church, Lord willing, next time, and then the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins. In connection with the election of the church, we take Romans 9, and we hear the inspired word of God. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came? who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? 
and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. In connection with this passage, as I stated, we have Lord's Day 21. We'll read the entire Lord's Day, even though our sermon this morning is on the first of those question and answers. We have question and answers 54, 55, and 56. Question 54, what believest thou concerning the holy Catholic Church of Christ? That the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his spirit and word, out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of him and of all his riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins, that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we make as our confession, as we did this evening, I believe in holy Catholic Church. That's what we confess in the words of the Apostles' Creed, which the Heidelberg Catechism here is explaining now, phrase by phrase. What is it that's necessary for a Christian to believe? This, that I believe in holy Catholic Church. 
Now, in connection with the Holy Catholic Church, the Catechism states that that church has been gathered, defended, and preserved through the ages. That it is a church that's been chosen unto everlasting life. It's especially that that we want to focus on this evening. The choice unto everlasting life. That's the doctrine of election. That doctrine was not so developed in the Heidelberg Catechism, and that's evident from the fact that this is the reference to election as found in the Heidelberg Catechism. The Belgic Confession, as we have in the insert, has the brief Article 16, whereas the doctrine of election was later developed far more thoroughly in the Canons of Dort. And you notice there that the first head of doctrine is quoted Articles 7 all the way through 18, as that's where we find the most full and complete development of this doctrine in our Reformed confessions. Now, many do not desire to hear a sermon on election. There are those who despise the doctrine. They want nothing to do with the idea that God is in control of all things, including the wonder of salvation. Some intellectually may grasp it, but they consider it too abstract, too deep, impractical. And they would rather not hear sermons on the subject of election or the decrees of God. Rather, things that are more practical. It's important for us to understand the doctrine of election not only is biblical, but when preached faithfully and biblically and developed as the Scripture does, is of immense practical application to our lives. It's a very interesting, exciting, practical, and comforting doctrine. And we look at that this evening. The election of God is the source of all the salvation that you and I enjoy in Christ. Why are we who we are? Why is it that we are here this evening? All because of the wonder of God's sovereign decree of election. And that's what makes this doctrine so important. It's an important doctrine in connection with the church. And that's the way in which the catechism brings it in, in connection with Christ's church. It's the heart of the doctrine of the church. Why is it that these individual members are members of the church? It's explained only in connection with God's sovereign decree of eternal election. The church that you and I embrace, the church that we love, not only as an institute, but also as the body of the elect, gathered out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, exists because of the decree of election. God's decree of election is what determines the church and what gives us security. There would be no church apart from election. And so we look at the election of the church, noting the idea noting the significance, and noting the goal. We begin with the question, what is the church? The Bible uses a number of different figures when it speaks of the church. The church is identified as the body of Christ, as the new Jerusalem, as the house of God, as a temple. There are many different analogies that the Bible uses. But all of them emphasize this idea. It's a complete organism. It's that which is complete and it's living. We're talking here not of specific local congregations or denominations as much as of the whole body of God's elect 
as they're found throughout the world. It's a complete organism, a full number ordained by God. Now the catechism here talks about that church as a church gathered out of the human race. The human race was created, as you know, by God in the beginning, good. God created Adam and Eve. God created them in His image, able to serve Him and love Him perfectly. Adam and Eve fell in sin. And as a result, the human race of which we are a part is hopelessly lost in sin. It's under the power of the devil, and it's headed to hell. What a horrible tragic thing has happened to the human race. The Catechism now talks about the fact that the Son of God, by His Word and Spirit, has been busy throughout all history gathering His children out of that fallen human race. God did not turn His back on the human race. He could have. He did not do so. And that's where the first head of doctrine in the canons as it walks through the truth of election and divine predestination, does so very logically in a manner in which you children can understand, setting forth the reality of man's fall into sin. The fact now that God could have, if He desired, turned His back on the whole human race. But He didn't. He determined that He would choose to Himself a people out of that human race who would constitute His church. And so the Catechism now is talking about that wonder, the Son of God gathering, defending, and preserving out of the human race a church, a church that's called to everlasting life in Jesus Christ. This is the work of God that He was busy in already right after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. God pursued and He sought out Adam and Eve. He called for them. And He drew them out of their selfishness and sin to Himself. God is busy working in the hearts of His children. Giving them faith. Drawing them together as a people called out of the world unto Himself. The church then is that collection of those whom Jesus Christ has died for whom He is busy gathering and whom He saves to Himself. This is in keeping with the New Testament word that's given for church. That word simply means called out. The church constitute those who have been called out of the wicked human race and have been separated now unto Jehovah God. The question that we face is this. Who determines the number of those who are called out, those who are separated. Either God determines how many people there will be, and God determines that number, or it's left to men. The fact that man determines the number, that man determines who's going to be part of that church, is most commonly confessed in our day. And that was the idea that was set forth by Jacob Arminius, back in the 15 and 1600s in the Netherlands. He thought that he could convince, could convince the Reformed churches that he was teaching that which was faithful to the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism already was in use. 
he was a professor and a minister. And he was teaching then that it's not God who determines the precise number of the church, but it's man. The result was the calling of a special synod to address and to delve into his teaching. And that was the Synod of Dort, which was called in 1618-1619 to determine whether this perspective was biblical or not. Arminianism teaches that God seeks in Jesus Christ to rescue every member of the human race. And with that goal, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for every individual member of the human race. He died for all men. He loves all men. But the death of Jesus Christ does not actually secure, it doesn't actually call out any specific person. But it merely makes salvation available for all and puts salvation in the reach of all. Arminianism teaches that God has lowered the rope of salvation to every single person that's living. And God now puts that salvation before them and calls them to grab the rope so that they can be saved and brought into the enjoyment of that salvation. And man then, according to his free will, has to grab that rope so that he can be saved and so that his salvation is determined. God is not the one who sovereignly knows the number of those who are saved. God has not sovereignly ordained that number. The only way that God would know is because God is able to look ahead. And he sees this person and that person and that person are going to grab the rope. And therefore, they're going to be saved. And so, election is conditional upon man and upon man's will and man's believing. God sends the gospel then throughout the world. And as that gospel goes forth, it goes forth as an offer of salvation to all men. A desire of God that everyone who comes under the preaching be saved and be brought into the fullness of the joy of salvation. And God gives grace to everyone who comes under the preaching so that they're able then, with that grace now, to receive that salvation. Grace then becomes resistible. Much grace goes wasted because those individuals do not make use of it in the manner that God would desire. And God's working then in the hearts of everyone to urge them and to inspire them to accept Jesus so that they can be saved. But in the final analysis, God's will is not sovereign. God has unfulfilled desires here because he desires the salvation of all, but not all respond. And so that, contrary to Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. We have a God, according to Arminianism then, who desires and loves all men and desires their salvation, but is not powerful enough to accomplish it. The will of man is sovereign. God would delight in everyone being in the church, but ultimately it's going to be up to you whether or not you're going to be a member of that church. And the number of those gathered into the church then is going to be the number of those who finally yield to the gospel and to the Spirit. A number determined by man and by man's will. The other alternative to that 
is that God determines the number. God determines the size of his church. And that's what the doctrine of election teaches. And that's the viewpoint of the Heidelberg Catechism and that which is developed in the canons of Dort. God has chosen a specific number that constitutes his church. God did not do that on the basis of looking ahead and seeing who would respond to his well-meaning desire and to the grace that he would give. God did that on the basis of his good pleasure alone. No other explanation. God chose this one. He chose that one. He chose these others according to his perfect eternal counsel to bring them into the enjoyment of the perfection of his fellowship. God didn't have to choose any. The fact that he chose some is entirely of God's good pleasure. And again, that's the emphasis that the confessions are making as they develop and as they speak of this wondrous work of God. Article 10 of the first head of the canons, the good pleasure of God is the sole cause of this gracious election, which does not consist herein that out of all the possible qualities and actions of men, God has chosen some as a condition of salvation, but that he was pleased out of the common mass of sinners to adopt some persons as a peculiar people to himself. And then quoting Romans 9, verses 11 through 13, and Acts 13, verse 48. This is God's work. Now what about the rest? God determined that they would be condemned in the way of their own sin and rebellion. And that's the sovereign, eternal decree of election and reprobation. God in history sovereignly gathering that church by His Word and by His Spirit in order that all those whom He has chosen be brought into the joy and wonder of their salvation. God sent Jesus to stand in the place of those whom He had chose in order that He might accomplish their redemption and their salvation. And so Jesus came into the world. He died on the cross. He paid the price that every last one of God's elect owed to God. So that his death, as we noted in the past weeks, was substitutionary. It was in the place of specific individuals whom God had ordained. I lay down my life for my sheep. In time, God calls those individuals by his word and by his spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And he brings them to faith in Jesus Christ and salvation and gathers them then into local instituted churches where they worship and where they praise Jehovah God for their salvation. That's the view of the catechism and that's the view of our Reformed confessions. Now the question we ask is, is that biblical? It's one thing for this to be the teaching of our confessions, but we need to be convicted in our own minds. This is the teaching of God's Word. And we insist this is the teaching of the Word of God. So then, we read in verse 16 of Romans 9, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. What is the apostle dealing with here in Romans 9? The chapter opens with a burden that's dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is burdened as he looks around and he sees his fellow Jews rejecting the gospel. 
He loves them. They're his family members, some. And as he looks at his fellow Jews and he sees them turning away from the faith and not believing in Jesus Christ, he asks himself this question, what about God's promise? God promised that he would save the children of Abraham. Is that promise failing? Here are the children of Abraham and they're going astray. I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, verse 2. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He says, I have so much heaviness that I could wish that I would go to hell in their place so that they could know the wonder of salvation. But the question is, what about the promise? God promised that he would save Abraham and Abraham's seed. Is that promise failing? So then he asked the question, to whom was that promise given? Was that promise given to every single individual of the offspring of Abraham? Did God make a promise to save every man, woman, and child among the Jews? Does God desire the salvation of all the Jews? And he says, no. That never was God's intention. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Just because they were born of Abraham doesn't mean they really were of the true Israelites. And here he begins to make a distinction. There's Israel and there's the true Israel. And that's the distinction between those who are of the human race and those who are the elect who are called by God out of that human race. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And so he emphasizes the promise is sure. God's promise holds. And that promise is sure because the promise was not to all men. God did not promise salvation to all the Jews head for head. God's promise was particular. And the author then, by the inspiration of the Spirit now, goes back to the beginning of the nation of Israel. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac was the recipient of the promise. Verse 7, Then Isaac had two children, and God continued his line through Jacob. Verses 11 to 13. Now the question is, why? Why did God continue through Jacob? Was it because God looked ahead and saw that Jacob was going to be a better person than Esau? Was it because Jacob was going to do some wonderful works that would be far more prominent than what anyone else had done? Why did God give particular treatment to Jacob? And God says, it was nothing of their works. It's not because Jacob is any better than Esau. Before they were born, I set my love upon him. Demonstrating God's love for me and for you is not based on anything of ourselves. It's not anything of man, but it's simply a love of God that now determines what that person is going to be. In other words, God setting his love on one now makes that person who that person will be as a child of God. It isn't that man is first, but God is first. It's a matter of God showing mercy to whom he will show mercy, verse 18. It's not first about about you wanting it 
or about your choice. It's about God and about the wondrous mercy by which He sets His love on some before they were even born, before they had done anything good or evil. And His love is the power now that makes them who they are to His glory and honor as members of His church. Whom He wills, He hardens. Now as we read through Romans 9, we understand it. It's not so difficult to follow. Difficult to embrace because we with Paul would desire that God saves all of our family members, that God saves all of our neighbors, and that they all know the blessedness and joy of heaven. Hard for our flesh as we reckon with the reality that it's not our will, it's not the will of man that dictates the church, but it's God's will. And God works faith by which His children lay hold of and embrace that truth. So that when the Bible explains the gathering of the church, it always explains it in terms of what God has done and whom God has chosen. And that's the sense and the idea also that's set forth throughout the book of Acts. The early church at Pentecost experienced growth. And you remember that growth. It was phenomenal. 3,000 people stepped forward after Peter's speech, his sermon, in order to confess their faith in Jesus Christ. They repented and they desired baptism. How do we understand that explosive growth? The church had numbered approximately 120 believers in an upper room waiting for the pouring out of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, the church now has 3,000 people desiring to join in membership. We read in Acts 2 verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This was God's doing. God had ordained. These were His children. And now, through the means of the sermon that Peter preaches, the Spirit's work in their hearts, they're brought to the understanding of who they are and the wonder of their salvation. Why these? Why not others? God chose them. That's the answer. Paul, in his first missionary journey, goes to Iconium, where some believe and some don't. And... The reason for it is answered. Why is it that some believed? Why didn't others? As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's the election of the church. And we ask ourselves, what comes first then? Believing or being ordained to eternal life? It's evident what comes first is the fact that I was chosen, I was ordained to eternal life. And because God set His love upon me, The fruit of that is faith so that I believe and I trust in God. Being chosen by God comes first. And because they were chosen by God, in time, when they heard the preaching of the gospel, they believed. Now, what significance is this practically to us? Why is this so important? There are many that see this as of a very minor significance. It's not so important whether God is sovereign or man is sovereign. And many even criticize a church that would put a lot of emphasis on the doctrine of election, saying that that church is somewhat one-sided, emphasizing that it's not balanced. These are not the important issues that we face as a church. Whether God is sovereign or we are, that's not a real big deal. Beloved, 
We submit to the teaching of the Scriptures. And the burden that we face is this. To demonstrate that the church exists today because of the sovereign election of God. And that its membership is not determined by you and by me, but by God's sovereign will. If the church was determined by man's free will, it would be a very different church. It might not even have survived till today. So what is the practical significance of this doctrine for the church? First of all, we confess that this is a holy Catholic church. The church is founded in every area of history and from throughout the world, from the beginning of time to the end of time. The church will exist in this world until the end of time, till Christ comes. Now, what a disaster if the church were to die out. If there were to become a time when, in our generation or the next, there would be no more church. And yet, there was time prior to Christ's return. The truth of election and the Catholicity of the church teaches the church will prevail. Because this is not up to man. This is God's work. The church will be found throughout the whole human race. Not just here in the United States, but throughout all of the races in all nations. And the church will flourish in all races, in all nations. Now that's important. And it's because of God and His sovereign decree of election. God is the one that sees to it that His church is a church that's made up of individuals from all different backgrounds, from all different tribes. It's a Catholic church. And God is giving us exciting days as we see His wonder and witness His hand as He's gathering that church. As he's performing wonders and gathering that church, not only here in Hall, in Sioux Falls, in Grand Rapids, but in the Philippines, in Singapore, in Southeast Asia. As he's gathering his church in Northern Ireland, in Europe, in Africa. God marvelously and powerfully is gathering to himself that church which he has sovereignly chosen before time. The powers of darkness and the powers of the devil have been strong against that church. If it was up to man, that church likely would have died out long ago, would have ceased to exist. There are places, for instance, like in Myanmar, where the military rules the country. And the military does everything in its power to keep all missionaries out, to keep the gospel out. If it were up to the will of man, it would be possible there would be no church, no believers in some of those lands. But the gathering of the church is not up to man. This is God's work. And God has chosen to himself a church, and he's chosen that church to be a Catholic church out of every nation, every age. And he will see to it, that church will flourish until Christ returns. And he promises that. Will there be found faithful when Christ returns? There will be. And the only way that can be guaranteed is that election guarantees the nature and the number of the church. If left to man, there would be no guarantee. There would be no confidence with regard to that. But Jehovah God is able to 
guarantee that wonder because the church and her composition is his work. But secondly, we confess that the church is one. We believe in holy Catholic church. A unity. And that unity is expressed in a lot of different ways, chiefly of which is the human body. The body is like the church. And we think of the beautiful unity of the body, all controlled by one head, and all the members have their own individual place and role. God gives to a body two eyes. He doesn't give five eyes. He doesn't give one eye. God has determined that that which functions best for a body is two eyes. The body does not need four mouths. Only one mouth is necessary. And so God, marvelously and wondrously, with great wisdom and balance, fashions the human body, all controlled by the head and ordained by him in perfect wisdom. That's the way the church is. The church has one head, Jesus Christ. There are many members, each with their own unique and perfectly ordained place with the gifts that God has given, serving the purpose that God has ordained in the perfect proportion that God has planned. All joined to Christ so that Christ is working in them and through them to perform the work of Jehovah God. This is God's work. And each local congregation is a manifestation of that body. So God places different individuals so that their diversity serves the unity of the body. We're members of the body of Christ, beautifully balanced and ordained by Jehovah God. Now, if the membership of the church was ordained by man or the free will or the choice of man, not God, things would be very different. The church would be lopsided. Even if the church would have survived, the church then would look like a monstrosity. Too many mouths, not enough eyes, too many arms, too many legs. It wouldn't function properly. But God determined the decree of election and by doing so determined the precise number of the church and her makeup. And according to his wonderful wisdom, made her to be a body that is fit to serve him in a wonderful manner and in the unity that he has ordained. Thirdly, a benefit and blessing and the significance of this decree of election with regard to the church. The church consists of families. Beloved, this is a beautiful, this is a wonderful thing. When we're young, we don't always appreciate the wonder of it. But as we come to church, we see our children grow. We have the privilege and benefit of seeing grandchildren. We stand in awe of this wonder. And we see how important the church is for the nurturing of families. Children are taught, strengthened in their faith, guided in sanctification, preserved by the means of grace. What a blessing that the church is comprised of families. This is the work of God's grace. And God's salvation is evident. This is the truth of the covenant. And it's glorious. Not only is this for the enjoyment of parents and grandparents, seeing their children grow up in the Lord, but beloved, this is for the glory of God and for His praise. And this wouldn't exist if the membership of the church was determined by the free will of man. There'd be one person over here saved, another person over here saved, a couple people out of this family. 
Now, the way often it's put is that because they're brought to church and because they're raised in the family, it's more likely that they're going to make that decision for Christ. And therefore, it's more likely that God will gather His church from among believers on their seed. But again, there would be no unity. There would be a greater lack and more division among families. Even those who do not recognize the beauty of the covenant Rejoice yet in this wonder that God saves families. And this is God's doing, beloved. This is not according to the will of man. This is not something that as parents we take credit for. If we would have to take credit for the salvation of some, we would also have to take the blame then for the fact that others do not respond. This is the Lord's doing. And herein is the comfort and the joy of the church. Election means that Jehovah God is the one who's determining the membership of the church. And He is pleased to do so in the line of generations. He's ordained this according to His sovereign good pleasure and mercy. And we stand in awe. And we're thankful as we stand before that wonder. But finally, beloved, you and I are able to have the confidence that we will and that we forever shall remain a living member of Christ's church. When God is in control, and when God determines the membership, and God works faith by which we lay hold upon the wonder of that truth, we can have this comfort. Notice the confession of the catechism, that we remain living members of Christ's church. Now isn't that comforting? The devil is waging a battle. The devil's trying to get us away from God. The book of Job is all about that battle. And the devil, foolishly thinking, he can sever individuals from God. If my election was conditional upon myself, the devil easily could do so. The devil easily could get me on a bad day and he could sever me from Christ. As I would make a bad decision, I would deny my Lord and I would perish everlastingly in hell. If my membership in Christ's church was up to my free will, I would never be able to make this my confession, that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. Proud men at times think they know more than God, and they think that they would be a better determiner of their own salvation and preservation. And they say it's up to them. They don't need the church. They don't need God. They don't need Christ. And so they despise the church. They despise the oversight of office bears. That's the way that leads to destruction. Beloved, you need the church. You need the comfort of the decree of election. A God who can't bring you into the church is a God who can't keep you in the church. If it was up to me and up to you and up to our choice, constantly we would be in fear. We would be in doubt. But my membership, beloved, and your membership is not, first of all, your choice or my choice. It's God's sovereign decree and choice. And again, Article 11, the good pleasure of God is the sole cause of this gracious election. And God will see to it that every one of His elect children see their need for the church 
and know their calling to join themselves as living members to local manifestations of that body where they will be fed and where they will enjoy Christ and His presence for their continued nourishment and strength. He will keep His church and He will preserve His saints. He uses the keys of the kingdom of heaven in order to work that wonder, Christian discipline toward that end. So that, beloved, we finally ask ourselves again this question. Is the decree, the doctrine of election, unimportant? Is there no practical significance? Beloved, this doctrine stands at the heart of the comfort of the church. This doctrine stands at the heart of the doctrine of the church. Are we unbalanced when we teach this doctrine? No. We've laid hold on the heart of the gospel. Here's the heart of the gospel. It's not of me. It's not of my willing. It's not of my running. It's of God who's shown me mercy. And beloved, that brings praise. That brings honor to God. What is the goal of the church? And what is the goal of the election of the church? The glory of God's name. God's work to gather and to save to himself his church is not a matter of obligation for God. It's a matter of his good pleasure. Verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Verse 22, to make his power known. This is God's work. And this is God's work that has to do with his power, his greatness, his glory. God has no need for a church. He has no need for those who would praise him. They can't add anything to his glory and to his honor. God has no obligation to do so. And that's the whole point that's argued here in Romans 9. Who are you, O man, to rise up against God and say, God is unjust because of the manner in which he chooses to himself his church? God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. Do you think that you're necessary for God's glory? That somehow you're necessary for the church of Jesus Christ? As the canons of Dort and the Belgic Confession begin, God had every right to fit us as vessels of wrath unto destruction. No obligation to save anyone after Adam and Eve fell into sin. He could have allowed the whole human race to perish everlastingly. But he determined to save some. He determined that he would take to himself a people whom he would preserve and he would gather and he would keep and he would bring them into the glory and the wonder of his covenant love. This was his good pleasure. And through the gathering and the salvation of his church, he glorifies himself. He shows forth his power and he extols his name. God shows the excellency of his virtue and the tremendous power and wisdom and glory that is his he has chosen to himself a church and he has ordained her salvation and he has given to that church a savior in jesus christ our lord and he is gathering that church from among our covenant seed as well as from among the world in which we live And he designs a perfectly united church with just the right amount of members who fit in just the right places with all of the gifts that he has determined as those who are the body 
of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And with wisdom, he directs the whole course of history in order to defend, to preserve, to gather that glorious church. He places his children into instituted, organized churches where they can be comforted, where they can be fed, where they can be strengthened in their Christian walk and where they can enjoy fellowship with one another as a foretaste of the eternal blessedness of that communion that he has with us. This is God's work. And it is marvelous to us. We stand in awe of it. We are humbled. And as we stand back and we see the purpose of God unfolding, as we see the wonder throughout the Old Testament, through the New Testament, we see the wonder of God's faithfulness as the church failed, as the church demonstrated again and again that she was not worthy to be considered as God's children. And yet God was faithful. God preserved her. God kept her. God rescued her. And we see that wondrous history unfolding in our own lives. How God directed the course of my life. We see it running in the lives of our children, our grandchildren. We see God working in other nations and the marvelous ways in which He blesses the work that goes forth from missionaries. All according to God's sovereign, eternal decree of election. And when history has run its course... And the church is fully gathered. God will be glorified. And he will bring an end to this world as we know it. And he will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. Wherein God will be all in all. Of that church whose existence is to serve God, you and I are members. And beloved, that's remarkable. It's a wonder of God's grace. We're living members. And we will remain living members to all eternity. A living member because of God's will, because of God's power within you. God's will so marvelous that God works in us so that we become willing. God doesn't gather those who are kicking and screaming and rebelling and not wanting to come with Him. He chooses to Himself a people and then He works faith in their hearts so that they desire to come. They repent. They turn from their sins. They live unto Him and for His glory. And they follow the way that He has ordained for His glory and for His honor. Behind your will and behind my will, beloved, stands God's sovereign, eternal will. And as God carries out His decrees, He bends and He turns your and my wills, working in us to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Working the faith by which we embrace Christ. We believe. We know the wonder of our salvation. We give Him all the glory. And He reminds us regularly why we are here. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about His glory. What's the church all about? It's to glorify God. The church is not about me. It's not about what I can get out of it. It's not about what I want. It's not even about my good. The church is about serving God. And when God is glorified, I rejoice. Beloved, that's the thankfulness that God works in our hearts. And that's what the scriptures teach. As the canons lay out this doctrine, notice the references to scripture. This is the scriptures 
teaching. This is the comfort of the gospel. And the response that God works in us is that of gratitude, that of thankfulness. Article 13 points that out. The sense and certainty of this election afford to the children of God additional matter for daily humiliation before Him, for adoring the depths of His mercies, for cleansing themselves and rendering grateful returns of ardent love to Him who first manifest so great love toward them. This is the gratitude that we owe unto our God. And that gratitude shows itself in humble obedience. We desire to be holy even as He is holy. God calls to Himself a church, not that's filthy and corrupt and remains in that corruption. A church that's identified now as saints. Still sinful, still bearing that sinful nature within them. But a church now that is devoted to Him, that seeks His well-being, that desires to glorify Him and to do His will. As living members, walking in thankful obedience to their God. And living in their place as members of that church of Jesus Christ. We are a member, a living member of Christ's church. And with joy we take up our place, using the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of others, serving Him, seeking His well-being, working with others for the support of the gospel, promoting the training of our covenant children, using our gifts in a manner that exalts and magnifies His holy name. This is why God chose you. This is why God saved you. This is why God brought you into His church. That as members of His church, you might magnify Him in all things. What a privilege, beloved. A privilege that fills us with joy, with peace, and with contentment. I believe in holy Catholic Church. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great wonders Thou hast performed on our behalf. With the Apostle Paul, we mourn over those in our lives who know not the joy and the wonder of that salvation. We pray that Thou wilt mightily work in their hearts repentance. Give them to know that joy, if it be Thy will. And Lord, stir us up that we might ever, in humility, walk before Thy face that we might use our gifts in the service of our Lord and King and in the service of one another, and that we might walk and demonstrate our love for Thee and for the neighbor. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.